we are. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Or welcome if you've not been here before. Where have you been? Ah, well, you're here now. And we have another wonderful, fantabulous, spectacular guest. Um, actually, she's been on our podcast before, so it's always nice to have somebody come back and share new stuff that they're doing. So I want to give a big old welcome to Lene and um Introduce yourself, tell us what you're up to, and we'll just go into it. Thank you so much for having me back, Karius. My name is Lene Brown. Um, the first time I was on your podcast, I think but the, the line was, we got the mic. I was the director of Howie the Harp Advocacy Center, which is a peer-run program where we trained people in mental health recovery to become peer support workers. I did that for 12 years. Now, I, what I did was I actually left New York and I left the job last summer and I'm now doing my own venture called uh, Social Service Survival Guide. Right now, it is a two-hour training to support, to empower human service workers to, to gain a more sustainable approach to human service work. My byline of the training is really how to belong to yourself at work. Wow, that sounds so amazing. And I know we talked a little bit about sort of this idea of social services work and the toll it can take on people and the different reasons why and how we look for either our own self-care, the organization to care for us or whatever is going on. So what gave you this idea to, to shift and focus on that social services sort of survival, if you will? In the summer of 2020, it was at the height of the pandemic before vaccinations. We all were working. Well, I should say not all of us are working from home, but I was able to work from home. And I started to really think about my work in social services over that decade, over the decade. The idea of social service survival guide, that phrase started off as a YouTube channel that I was developing. My goal with the channel was a place where human service workers could talk about the difficulties of human service work and at the same time, be really proud of our work. And in fact, I think my byline for back then was called people who support people support each other. And I remember I did took two episodes and I remember, remember in my first episode, I said that what made the work difficult is it felt like I was taking care of people, but I wasn't being taken care of. Mm-hmm. And I wanted the space to be about that discussion of that. Like, how can we take better care of ourselves? It always felt really weird to me that as a, as a human service worker, we're looking after people at very pivotal times of their life, whether it's housing, mental health recovery, substance use recovery. Yet, we were in positions where we didn't have the resources we really needed to do the work. And often, at least in my experience, put in the position where not only did I have to do a job, I also had to find a way to fill in for the lack of resources to do the job. And on top of that, I felt like I had to continually prove that I was doing the job for fear that my job would be taken away. And I knew that was a lot of pressure. <laughs> like I thought it was, that's a lot of pressure to have to do a job. 
So I did two episodes of the program and I ceased filming because I realized that I wanted what I really wanted to talk about wasn't going to be in alignment or conducive to being an employee. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea stuck with me, this people supporting people supporting each other. That stuck with me. I mean, I, I had a lot of colleagues in social services, and other agencies who were experiencing the same thing. So to me, it's not an agency thing necessarily. It was systemic. Mm-hmm. But I thought about it and I thought, well, social services, you know, is a sector that's supposed to take care of people who are in vulnerable situations. Like, you remember the whole um, Desmond Tutu quote that says, that, I mean, we keep pulling people out of the river, but at some point we have to look up and see who's pushing them in. Yes. Well, and our country, it's our country pushing people in, right? It's our, like, we live in a society that doesn't take care of its people. Yeah. I mean, our country was founded on that. It was founded on the murder of indigenous people, the enslavement of African people, and, it's, and there's been no reparations around that. So we have a culture that doesn't take care, take care of its people. We live in a zero-sum game culture. Yeah. Rich people think they've earned every dollar. Some poor people think they deserve it. Some rich people think poor people deserve it. I mean, it's just, it's an immoral situation we're in in terms of how this, cult, how this country runs. We, we yeah. have not learned to take care of each other yet. So to expect social services to do more than that. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like social services was born out of that. So social yeah. services, yeah. So social services is basically pulling people out of the river almost at the rate they're pushed in. But of course, over the last 20 years, it's not even at that rate. You know what I mean? It's not even at that rate any long. So social services isn't meant, it wasn't developed to to go against what society already is set up to do, right? The dog eat dog thing. So that alone just makes you go, oh, right. Okay. My expectation was way off. (laughs) Exactly. That is so powerful because I think it's about this idea that, well, wait a minute. It's, it's like, it's a culture, like we have this culture, this Amer- this quote unquote American culture to expect that anything wouldn't be acculturated into that culture. Correct. Well, I don't think we sit around and think about it quite frankly. So no. um, so let's talk a little bit about this, this, this mismatch. You know, I don't know if it's cognitive dissonance. I don't even think that's the right term. I thought initially that's the right term, but it's not. It's just a, mis- a mismatch that we don't take time to recognize so we have an expectation that can get dashed because we haven't taken the time to recognize some of these fundamental things. So when you got to this point, you know, you get to this point, you're you're kind of figuring it out. Yeah. So I so so that part really became clear to me. And and it's funny because I I mean I I thought that a while before I had that thought a while ago because I worked in the profit sector for most of my career. This was my only social service job. And I knew I saw a difference really quickly in that, see, in the profit world, the people who are paying for the services or products are the people receiving the services or the products. So it's very direct, right? So if you're doing a good job, you get paid. If you're not doing a good job, you won't get paid. You know, your, the, your clients won't buy your services. They won't buy your products. That's it. That's how you know directly. And then you, then you pivot, right? You're like, oh, oh stop. My stuff sucks. So I got to change something so that people buy my products or services. See, nonprofit doesn't work that way. The people who are funding the services are not the people receiving the services. That's a huge gap. So the people who are funding are not in direct relationship with the people receiving. 
So their decisions aren't based on what participants need or want. It's based on, on something completely different. And now I've never been at the table, so I've never been behind closed doors when these decisions are made, but I do know this. The funding that I've run across and funding conversations that I've run across, they weren't based on like, you know, this is the money, we, we've done the research, we figured out that it takes X amount of dollars to help X amount of people in recovery. We know we want to pay workers, human service workers, a livable wage and have the health insurance, et cetera. So we calculated all that and here's the amount of money we think that it will, you know, you can run your program. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Most of the time it's, we have a bunch of money. We're going to allot this amount of money to this program and you do the best you can with it. You know, under the guise of, you know, we want to be responsible with taxpayer money, be as efficient as possible, et cetera, which is understandable. You don't want to waste money, but there's a difference between when you've done the research to figure out how much money it actually takes to have the outcomes you want versus an allotment. This is what we we're going to give you to get that work done. And you figure it out is basically what a lot of the funding is like, right? Yeah. You, yeah. Little, little Miss MBA says, <laughs> where's the business model, right? Right. Right. <laughs> we were working with a, 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 a philan- with the philanthropic organization and, um, the founder kept asking, but what's the business model of mental health? <laughs> and it was all I could do not to have my head spin around and my eyes go up into my head while we're all on Zoom, trying to help the person who is a business person understand the business model, which is not a business model, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they kept asking questions like, but, but wait, what, but wait, what? And it's like, oh, we're trying to explain this in sort of the, the uh, for-profit world frame. And this is not what's going on here. And when we do try to make it fit, it still fits awkwardly because having been at some of those tables. So, so if we're at some of those tables now, what happens is, well, how much does a, and and I'm just going to, you know, use this very broadly, just, just to give an example. Um, Because this is a conversation that happens all the time. Uh, We don't have enough psychiatric beds. How many beds do we need? How many people are in the United States? How do we take that and divide it by the number of people on average who would need a psychiatric bed to then kind of figure out how many psychiatric beds do we have versus how many psychiatric beds do we need? What is the average cost of a psychiatric bed? Do the math and suddenly you come up with the amount of money and the number of beds that you need. As if people work in that particular way, which is which is not how humans work. Um, and there's no other calculation around poverty. There's no other calculation around, like, for example, you know, other social determinants of health that may impact a person needing or not needing a quote unquote bed. And then it's like, what about the services that go with that bed? Are they really effective? So are we paying for what exists and kind of saying the status quo is effective? Who's analyzed that? And what is effectiveness? Keeping people out of the hospital, keeping people out of jail, keeping people out of homelessness. Is that what hospitals are for? So, <laughs> you know, I think I think you're kind of right. It's like, how do we back into kind of creating a, I don't, I don't know if the word logic model is correct, but a logic and business model. Um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. It's not fitting. No. And then see, this is a part I really wanted to get to because this was the part that really blew my mind. So we, we have a social services with the backdrop of a country that doesn't take care of its people. 
we have an allotment of funding, not figuring out how much money it actually takes to help people recover, but an allotment. And so you're left as an agency and as workers to figure out what to do. How can you serve the most amount of people with the least amount of resources? I call it like trying to do magic without a wand. Okay, so now (laughs) I run across this issue of trauma responses. So now we've heard trauma responses, right? But we have the fight, flight, and freeze, right? When the idea of how we react when we are in hard situations, fight, flight, and freeze, okay? A fourth one was added called fawning about a decade ago. And when I looked at what fawning was, it just completely cracked me open. This idea that, okay, again, I mean, we talk about fight, fight, and freeze, and, and it's often talked about within toxic relationships, right? So this idea of fawning is basically befriending the toxic person as a way to stay safe, putting them first, always putting what they need, want, past your limit, you work past your limit, past your boundaries, but you're trying to keep this person happy with the hopes that you will be safe, with the hopes that you will avoid conflict. Now that I, like, again, I walked down this rabbit hole of fawning, and this is something that women do. Women, and you figure the workforce, uh, I think the social service workforce is like 85% is women. And women do often do fawning with men as a way of staying safe, right? We try to appease them and try to work past our limits and boundaries so that we won't be hurt, we won't be attacked, we won't be whatever. And when I saw that correlation, I, I just can't help thinking, was this a trauma response to in there? Like, so was this what I was trying to do to like work so hard to fill in the gap of lack of resources, working way past my, my boundaries, working way past my capacity. And so that's where social service survival guide comes in because I can see now how all of those things brought together made working in human services very, really difficult for me. And I, like I said, now I see it. Now I see, now I see looking across at other people who find the work very frustrating, who are, who are deeply disappointed and deeply frustrated and deeply angry. Why? Yeah. Yeah. So as you, as you kind of had this, and I'll call it the epiphany, because I think um, I've, I've had the, a similar epiphany and not with all the language as, as, I mean, you're really articulating it really well. I was just like, okay, that was really messed up. And I let myself be in that messed up situation because I was afraid to leave, but I, you know, was staying because I thought yeah, it, all the things that you said, but I couldn't figure out that next step, right? Because I didn't want to repeat what just happened. Seriously, did not want to repeat that. And I'll never forget waking up and having that epiphany of, oh, okay, I need to find a different way of being and a different place where I can be that being, right? So when you kind of came to this sort of enlightenment and epiphany, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, how did you then, how are you going about now turning that into helping other people have this, you know, either a similar recognition and sort of think about where they want to be and how they want to be so that they can be fully themselves? It was hard to really describe what exactly happened to me in what order, because it was all sort of coming together slowly. It wasn't this one moment, this one moment happened. And then I realized this, it was all sort of like organically happening. So as social service survival guide, as I ceased filming from that, this idea of people supporting people, supporting each other really rang true for me. It felt like 
there was something there and I couldn't figure out what it was. I then at the same time as going through my own understanding of figuring out for myself, do I want to be okay in this new understanding of what this job is? Do I want to spend time helping agency through, through this um, diversity initiation? I was asking myself all these questions and then literally this was the epiphany. One night, I forgot what exactly what got me thinking about this. I was lying in bed. And I said, you know, I guess it was because we were in the middle of COVID. And I thought to myself, if you died tomorrow, would you be okay with this? That this is your last job, that you're living in New York? Would this be okay with you? And I heard this resounding, hell no. (laughs) This resounding like, this can't be it. Like, Mm -hmm. this can't be the last thing that I do. This can't be the last contribution I make. This can't be it. So that's when I knew my, my, my days were definitely numbered. Like, I just knew I wanted to do something else. And so social service survived. I was in the back of my mind. And then again, I was just trying to plan my way of what I was going to do next. And, and to answer that question of what you had is like, I was thinking the same thing. Normally what I'd done in the past is I was so busy trying to get out of something. I wasn't paying attention to where I was going. Mm-hmm. I didn't really think about where I was going to, I was just kind of, let me get out of here. And then wherever I landed, I just kind of figure it out and scurry about trying to make it work. So it took me about a year to really figure out to, to plan my next thing. And even, and even after the plan was over, like when I actually moved out of New York and I moved and I, and I left the job, I had set social service survival guide was this still this thought of how can I support my human service people? Like how can I, and ultimately it became, could I become the person I wish I had when I started in social services? Like, what would the person be like and what would they could have told me a decade ago that would have made a difference for me? Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's what ends up happening. That's like peer support. Right. You end up like you live through something and then you want to use that experience to go back and say, hey, y'all, <laughs> like, hey, y'all, <laughs> like now I see it in hindsight. Yeah. Like I've had I've had rest. I've had I'm hydrated. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, no, I kind of see what happens. I want to go back and say, yo, here's what we you know, here's where you could really help yourselves out because I wish I'd known this, right? I wish I'd known all of this stuff. And so this idea of belonging to yourself at work, here's what I would actually say. There's a couple of things, like if I would, if I, I mean, you're asking me about like, what would you tell people like actionable things to do? These are the three, three things that I would tell people to consider. One is, and this made a huge difference for me. I developed my CV, not a resume, my CV, where I wrote down every skill contribution I had made at that job and anything related to it. I wrote it all out from podcasts to articles, to workshops I did across the country, to the graduation events that I put together, to maximizing funding, funding streams that had never been maximized as much as until I did that. De Blasio had put together a mental health uh, committee of leaders across the city. I was part of that. I was um, looking at different you know, initiatives uh, of, you know, so I did a lot of things like that. So I put it all on my, I put it, I put it all in one, one document. It ended up being almost three pages long. And I'm looking at this document and I was like, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> like, I did all that. Mm. In fact, I showed a friend of mine who, who, who told me, he called me back and said, you did all this. You're amazing. Mm-hmm. And I needed to see that CV to recognize, go, oh, I can do all this, huh? And then it got me thinking, where else can I do this? Mm-hmm. Along with that, the second thing I did was it became very clear to me that from that CV, what I made sure to do 
was move over from making that my identity to marrying my contribution. My identity became my contribution. I'm a multi-potentialite. I have the ability to do lots of different things. I can plan events. I can do Excel spreadsheets. I can do all sorts of things. Where else can I do this? How else can I serve my people in a way that I can sustain myself, right? You, it's magic when you start looking at your actual, what you actually have done and asking yourself, where else can you do it and how else can you do it? Mm-hmm. And the third thing, which seems kind, of, seems kind of counterintuitive, not counterintuitive, but it seems kind of strange to do, but this really helped me, which was I looked at my expenses, my living expenses. And I started looking at how much money do I actually need to live? To what, how much money do I actually need to live my life? Not oh, to buy everything I want, but what do I actually need? And here's what I found out is when I was looking at my expenses, I noticed how much money I was spending on numbing Uber Eats, $50 here, $50 there. I, you know, because after a hard day, I deserve Uber Eats. I don't, I deserve not to have to cook. I deserve Uber Eats, you know. <laughs> I'm not even gonna talk to you about the expenses of alcohol, <laughs> like coming home at coming home at night being like, I deserve this wine, I deserve this, you know, vodka tonic or whatever. You know, I added up that money and I was like, wow. Mm. That's a lot of money I'm spending to numb myself to get through a very hard situation. Mm-hmm. And when I actually looked at that, I thought to myself, so I'm going to marry my contribution. I now see what I can do. And now I can see how much money I actually need to live. And, and considering if I'm out of this stressful situation, I won't need all that money to numb. I won't need to numb. And that's what got me really thinking about what else I can do and to actually try this out and to step out on my own. I mean, these past nine months since I've been doing this and kind of getting myself together and studying my own business and starting this training program, I would have traded this experience for the world. Like there was so, un- there's a lot of uncertainty, right? Um, but the pandemic has demonstrated that there's no such thing as certainty. <laughs> like if nothing else, we know from that pandemic, there's no such thing as certainty. But now at least I can spend my energy focusing on how I can be of service, taking care of myself, and really be focused on those two things. I don't have to worry about proving myself to people above me. I don't have to worry about, and in fact, what made it difficult is I was middle management too. So and, and have you ever been middle management? Yes. You know, you know middle management, you get it from all sides. Like you mm-hmm. have to answer to the people above you. You have to answer to funders. You have to answer to colleagues. You have to answer to staff. You have to answer to participants. You got to answer to like so many people. Yeah. It's, like the, it's like the hardest position because you get it from all sides. Mm-hmm. All that's gone. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I love the three things. I'm, I'm very bad about like writing everything. As a matter of fact, I asked a friend of mine who often, I should probably call him a colleague is a better term, sort of, uh, ask, oh, can you do this presentation with me? Oh, can you write this article with me? And I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. You know, if I have time, sure. And then I'm like, oh, I forgot to put down that article we wrote. Uh, How do I cite it again? Or wait, when did we do that? I was like, how do you keep track of it? Oh, I just put it in a Google doc and I just add, you know, go in and add it immediately. And I'm like, okay, okay. Um, So yeah, the value of a CV over a resume. So you can actually see um, all the things that, you know, you do. And and, and I also am, am hearing too that, 
not just the over-identification with one's job, but an over-identification um, with the role or the title. And we even say yes. it like, um, you know, uh, so where do you work and what do you do? Oh, I am the, and, yes. and I will say, well, my role there is because I'm not, I am not the, I have a role there and it is this, right? And so on my personal card, not not my business everyday card, when I look at all the things, it's so funny that, that tell me, tell me what you call yourself again, a potential, what, say it again. It's a, it's a multi-potentialite. Multi-potentialite. Um, I am an innovationalist. Nice. <laughs> so I've decided that I'm, I'm very innovative and I'm creative and that's kind of how I like to do my work and um, contributions I make. So I've decided, yes, if I have to give myself sort of this way of thinking of what I, I contribute, it's around sort of innovation, creative, thinking about things differently, et cetera. So I call that an innovationalist. That's it. Right. Um, so as you know, we're, we're wrapping up and thinking, you know, for people, you've given them three things that they could do. If also they're interested and it's fine, you know, self-promotion, why not? Right? <laughs> why not? Um, you know, if, if people are interested in learning more about the course or learning more about exactly what we're talking about, you know, um, how do they, how do they take the course or learn more about it? Yes, you can go to my website. It's lynaebrown.com, L-Y-N-N-A-E, brown, like the color.com. And all the information is there. Um, I'm also revamping my YouTube channel. <laughs> so, um, and that's under social service survival guide on YouTube. And that's, okay. you can find me either one of those places. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Are there any last words of mad wisdom you've dropped mucho as we've been talking but are there any last words of uh, wisdom wisdom dropping that you have for our listeners before we sign off yeah i would I, i've talked to i've talked a lot about the hardships of human services because it there's as we talked about but i will say this i'm so glad i worked in human services <laughs> this is where i found out how to be a human being like, this is where I found out where there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. I, I came into the system. And when I first started working here, I used to think that there was something like mental health wrong, like wrong with me. I put this in air quotes, of course. There was absolutely nothing wrong with me. I learned that in my, at, at work. I learned that I am a human being, half magic, half mess, like everyone else. I'm within that spectrum, that things happen to me. Uh, that I reacted in a certain way and that I gained agency over when I, and when I think about like, you know, my disappointment, cause I wanted to change the world, the world of everyone who went through our program was changed. Yeah. That's what this was for. Yeah. Everyone who went through our program, their worlds were changed. And for that, I am so grateful and so honored. I was a part of that. Wonderful. Wonderful. Clap, snaps, thumbs up the whole nine yards. Yay. So thank you so much for joining me on um, Unapologetically Black Unicorns. You can add that you are an Unapologetically Black Unicorn too to the whole list, you know. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. Um, it was great to have this conversation. Thank you for having me again, Karis. Take care. Yeah. And to our listeners, y'all know what to do. Um, my producer says, I'll just quote him, 
like, subscribe, comment. All right, so I told you, you can do it. But the most important thing that we both agree about, is, as do others, is to please share the podcast. There are people who definitely would benefit from hearing these conversations, and we want to make sure it gets out to folks. So please share. And until next time, which is next week, we'll talk on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.